0: Hi everyone, this is Darius Sulam from Inside Scientific, the online environment for life science webinars, virtual events, interviews, and educational content that helps you do your best work. Thank you for joining us on another episode of Expert Answers. Today we are joined by Artur Fedorowski, MD, PhD, Senior Consultant and Head of the Syncope and Disautonomy Unit at Karolinska University Hospital. In a recent webinar, Artur explains cardiovascular dysautonomia as a specific sequelae of acute COVID-19 and guides the audience in the diagnostic workup of patients with suspected cardiovascular complications. Let's dive in. First question comes from Elena. She asks, how do you deal with the blood pressure fall at the beginning? As per definition, there should not be a fall that's higher than 20 over 10.
1: This is a very good question. First, you will not see uh, this blood pressure fall unless you are applying bit-to-bit monitor. So if you, if you see the blood pressure initial blood pressure fall during active standing tests, I, I guess this is what the author of this question has in his or her mind so if you see this initial blood pressure fall it might be a sign of autonomic dysfunction as well we used to call it initial orthostatic hypotension as, as you as you may have seen in the study by satish raj group from calgary There were 70% of post-COVID patients who were diagnosed with this issue. So this is quite common among post-COVID patients. However, I I understand the meaning of the question or the idea behind this question. So if you see the temporary blood pressure fall, even if it goes down to 40 minus 40 millimeter mercury it doesn't affect the POTS diagnosis because we used to look at the later part of orthostatic challenge after one minute, after the circulatory response has uh, stabilized. So this is from one minute to 10 minute that we used to look to diagnose POTS.
0: Fantastic, another question from Olena. How do you define exercise intolerance? How do you differentiate
1: from post-exertional malaise? exercise tolerance is any exercise that produces fatigue or um, delayed recovery or absence of uh, recovery at all so uh, for me is this is a symptom that can be very well tested in an objective way just like by performing exercise ECG test or any other uh, six-minute walk in the other test. So we have some objective measures that can be applied to demonstrate that the uh, patient is suffering from exercise intolerance. First of all, we ask the patient, how do you feel when you exercise, when you form any effort And uh, what about the the recovery time? Do you recover completely? Or do you have some persistent symptoms after the exercise? And then we can make some objective tests like uh, exercise ECG or six-minute walk, which we perform at our institution.
0: Fantastic. Another question for you. In your opinion, which specialty physicians should be allowed to diagnose POTS? Cardiologists, neurologists, general practitioners,
1: Or is this more of a cross-speciality issue? This is definitely an interdisciplinary issue, interdisciplinary problem. As you may have noticed, looking at one of the slides, which demonstrated a wide spectrum of different postulated symptoms, we have symptoms that stem from cardiovascular system that stem from the nervous system that stem from gastrointestinal system and so on. However, what is uh, the uh, major sign of POTS is the cardiovascular dysfunction, cardiovascular autonomic dysfunction. So I think for, for diagnosis, it's good that the patient will be seen by a by cardiologist or by neurologist that uh, has some good competence in the field of cardiovascular autonomic control may perform and interpret active standing tests or TIL testing and, and so on, and additional autonomic testing. So by, by tradition, I remember one survey performed a uh, few years ago by Autonomy International in the US, and as far as I remember, 65% of POTS patients were diagnosed by cardiologists and around 30% by neurologists, but of course primary care physicians, may diagnose spots as well. What you need is actually active standing test and sort of review of patient symptoms. That's that's enough.
0: Perfect, great. Another question here. Do you see a need for beat-to-beat blood pressure monitoring at home in addition to -to beat-to-beat heart rate with a halter?
1: Probably not. I try to understand the idea behind this question. If you perform a more sophisticated test in the lab, in a diagnostic center, you probably almost obligatory need the bit-to-bit monitor to be able to diagnose initial orthostatic hypotension, valsalva, abnormal valsalva response, uh, abnormal deep breathing response, and to track the uh, blood pressure curves doing tilt testing, absolutely. You may use bit-to-bit monitor at your primary care center just for the same reason. If you have budget for it, if you uh, have skills, to interpret the test. Of course, it may be performed even without tilt table, without uh, access to very fancy other monitors. But uh, you you have to understand that uh, bit-to-bit monitor monitor gives you a lot of more information. It takes more time to perform the test, but it gives you much more information. You will see on the screen what's happening behind the scene in the circulatory system. However, I would not recommend it for uh, let's say home monitoring. I guess this is too early, but I've heard about uh, some new technology being now entering the, the, uh, the market. And we may expect that within five, five, 10 years, it might be available, not maybe bit-to-bit technology, but maybe a sort of quasi bit-to-bit technology giving you an average of 10 bits blood pressure.
0: Fantastic, thanks so much.
1: So do you have any
0: experience using heart rate variability to diagnose and monitor long COVID dysautonomia?
1: Yes, uh, there is a place for it, absolutely. Actually, uh, if you look at uh, the um, Holter ECG of a patient with inappropriate sinus tachycardia, if you don't see this typical circadian wave and the nine-time dip, you may expect that the heart rate variability is very very much squeezed. There is, heart rate variability is very much reduced. There are signs on Holter ECG that you can guess the uh, heart rate variability is impaired, of course. But what we are looking for are the diagnostic signs that we can use to diagnose the patients. So we are looking for the average heart rate in in the first place and uh, heart rate spikes then you can look if your device provides this uh, calculation. You can look at heart rate variability. And if you see that heart rate variability is very much reduced, it means that uh, the patient is really in trouble. And probably treating this patient with uh, heart rate regulating drugs, beta blockers and ivabradine might help a lot.
0: Here's another question related to heart rate variability. This question asks, isn't there any heart rate variability index calculated from a short-term ECG recording that can show the presence of POTS?
1: Not according to my knowledge. I know that one group from France is working on it. They have presented some uh, preliminary data, but this, is, this has not been published yet. This is not in clinical use yet. So it, it may come, of course, but what we are looking for changes produced by orthostatic challenge in the first place. And looking at ECG only, you cannot guess what's happening with the body as a whole. Fantastic.
0: Here's an interesting question for you. Do you propose activity that would stimulate the parasympathetic system, respiratory exercises like meditation, cold showers, vagal nerve stimulation,
1: acupuncture, these sort of things? Would that help in any way? Probably, yes. Probably, yes. And I've heard about it from my patients, some uh, very desperate patients and very, let's say, dedicated patients. They, uh, they tried this out and some of them reported a great improvement. The problem with uh, this kind of measure is that you have to be very disciplined, perform it. You have to perform it on a regular basis and uh, you have to follow the instructions. And probably if you don't do it, the effects will be less uh, pronounced. And uh, then this may uh, disillusion you, and then you may quit it. You mentioned vagus nerve stimulation. I read about one study performed by Professor Fulan Group in uh, Milan that reported very good effects of uh, vagus nerve stimulation POTS patients, especially for heart rate variability, actually, that we mentioned before. There are some studies ongoing, and if these devices could be more user-friendly, probably we will will be there to catch them and to use them. Fantastic, yeah. So
0: the last question I have for you is, what is the role of low-pressure baroreceptors in the dysautonomia syndrome? Okay.
1: Uh, <laughs> Big question. <laughs> this, this is not an easy question. Low blood pressure receptors. I guess that the author of this question is asking not about baroreceptors in your carotid sinus, but some other receptors in the pulmonary area, in the pulmonary circulation, or probably in the vein system. I can answer like that. Let us imagine the, the POTS as a system disease, systemic disease affecting all receptors in the body and probably all receptors, or all receptors that are connected to the autonomic nervous system and transferring signals in an afferent way to the autonomic centers are affected. And these receptors may have, as well, a very substantial role, but they are difficult to test in the autonomic lab. So this is the problem.
0: We hope you enjoyed this episode of Expert Answers, and that you'll tune in to future episodes where researchers just like you answer questions about their work and share science. Don't forget to subscribe, and we'll see you next time.